one of the things that we love to do is to take big chunks of scripture. In fact, oftentimes we go through a book and we just kind of go verse by verse through the entire thing. And so what we're doing is over the next six weeks, we're going to go over Jesus' sermon on on the mount. Now, interesting little tidbit. It's going to take us, because Jesus is a way better communicator than I am, it's going to take us about six weeks to say what Jesus said in about ten minutes. He just kind of said it and then he left and he left everybody else to kind of figure out what did that mean? You know, what did he say? Love your who? You know, I mean, it was, it was, there was a little bit of confusion around maybe. And, but Jesus, Jesus just said things and he left. And in fact, we're going to spend six months, or not six months, six weeks doing it. But we could, honestly, we could spend six months because we could, we're going to go over the Beatitudes this morning, a little bit extra on top of that. And we could legitimately spend a week on each of the Beatitudes. We could spend almost the entire semester on the Beatitudes if we really wanted to like hone in and pay attention, but then you wouldn't enjoy it and you get bored and you go to a different church. So we're not going to do that today. We're going to go through, uh, through the, you know, a, a big chunk. But we love to take the Bible and go verse by verse as often as we possibly can. Um, and so that's what we're doing. We're doing the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount. Now, let me give you a little backstory before we kind of get cranking into the things that Jesus said. Let me kind of, uh, I guess more so, let me paint you a picture if I can of what their culture was like. Because the interesting thing, another interesting thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that our culture, our culture, the, the, the culture that we live in, society live in, the country, frankly, that we live in, has been so deeply impacted by the words Jesus said, it's hard for us to understand how big of a deal it was when Jesus said it. That is to say, the words that Jesus said had so much gravity And they carried throughout the years, and they were so informative and transformative throughout the centuries that our culture and our world have been so deeply impacted by the words that Jesus said, it's hard for us to really grasp what it was like when he originally said it and just how countercultural it was. So let me try to give you you kind of a blank slate if I could erase your mind and you had no clue what culture was like today and tell you what this was like when Jesus said it. When Jesus said it, The umbrella statement for what the culture was like for them was simple. It was might makes right. Might makes right. Might makes right. Whoever's the biggest and whoever's the strongest and whoever's the most powerful could do whatever they want with whoever they wanted whenever they wanted to. Whoever's the biggest, whoever's the strongest, whoever's the most powerful, whoever's the most influential could do whatever they wanted. They could do it whenever they wanted and they could do it to whomever they wanted. Because might made right. And this kind of central principle, this central idea, is what the entire, entire, entire world circulated around. In fact, you've kind of read this in history class. You maybe didn't think of it through that lens, but you know, you know that there was you know, the Assyrians, and the Assyrians were around for a while, but we were on kind of before the Assyrians, there was the Babylonians, and the Assyrians took out the Babylonians. Some of you, again, you read this in history class. Some of you read it in your Bible. Man, that's crazy. So anyways, um, so the, you know, the Babylonians kind of thing happened, and eventually some other people, the Assyrian thing happened, and eventually the Greeks you know, happened, and Alexander of the Great and Hellenization happened, and then eventually this place that we would all know about called Rome. Anybody ever been to Rome before? Rome came in power because, because, because might made right. If a country could take over another country, if a nation could take over another nation, if a kingdom could take over another kingdom, then they would. And might, might, might always made right. And so, for the people, the idea was, if I can accumulate more wealth, wealth almost always leads to power. And power leads to me to be able to do it whatever though I want, whenever the heck I want to do it. Which, honestly, <laughs> that is living the dream. You know, you can do whatever you want. You know, we all say, you know, oh, yeah, bro, I'm living the dream, a.k.a. I'm getting up working 9 to 5 and, you know, making minimum wage. But, yeah, I'm living the dream. So I'm playing Xbox on the weekends. That's what that means. But when, when you know, that, that, that was, you know, you could do whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, because if you could impose your will, here's the crazy thing. It wasn't immoral. 
It wasn't immoral to them. They didn't necessarily have this big social conscience that said, that's wrong. Because for them, might made right. And so every person did everything they could to accumulate as much wealth as possible. And then the accumulation of wealth would develop power. And power would help you to be able to do whatever you want, whenever you wanted. That people would just do what you said because of the fact that you said it. This is like, uh, this is like the glorification of my five-month-old right now. We've got a five-month-old, Lindsay and I, her, little, her name's Ava. She's the cutest girl in the history of cute little girls. And she, um, man, she's, she's living the dream. She, like, legitimately is. She's been to Kentucky. No, she hasn't been to Kentucky. She's been to Tennessee. She's been to North Carolina. She's been to lake houses. She's been to lake houses that I could never own in, like, my, my wildest dreams that she's just been able to go and, go, you know, hang on the lake and bobble her little head around. You know, she's been to the beach. She's been all around Tallahassee. She's been, you know, she's been, she's traveled a good amount of the country. She's five months old. And here I was talking, I was talking to Lindsay. I was like, you know, the interesting thing is she's never even taken a step. Like she just cries and people feed her. She cries and people change her. She didn't have to worry about what she's going to wear in the morning. She just always looks cute because her mom likes to spend money on cute clothes. You know, ladies, right? Anyways, that was, that was, that was, you know, gender stereotype, but get over it. So anyways, so what happens? So what happens is, is, is that was essentially the culture that they were in. Might makes right. Might makes right. Might makes right. Do what you want if you can, because if you have the strength, if you have the power, if you have the influence, then you can do whatever. People, people, people that we have that we see now as valuable were not valuable to them. The poor ink is not even valuable. Not even a blip on the radar. Charity was was not a strong case. Women, frankly, were property had no real value, had no real substance in their culture because they weren't the strongest and they weren't the most powerful. And then a culture where might makes right, if you're not strong enough and you're not powerful enough, then you're not going to be valued very much. Now what's interesting, what's interesting is we've been, again, deeply impacted, but there's still some of that that remains in who we are as a culture today. Now, one of the things that I love to do is I love to listen to music, just like everybody. Nobody you know, doesn't like music, unless you're a complete weirdo. But everybody likes music to some degree. So I was you know, thinking, I was like, you know, our, our, what's interesting is our music kind of shows what our culture values in, in some different ways. So I printed off a couple songs that I wanted to share with you today. Now, I'm sure none of you know any of these songs because you're all very biblical people. Um, but right now, there's a guy, there's a, is a very deep philosopher, um, that uh, exists in our culture today. He's, he's, he's I mean, just the, the thoughts just, you know, reverberate through our hearts forever. And his name is uh, Rich Homie Kwan. Hello, if you know my man Rich Homie. Um, in fact, I pointed off, there's, there's a song called Flex, which is also known as Ooh, 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 Ooh. All right? Um, and I don't know if, if, again, you guys don't know this guy because, you know, you, I know you listen to praise and worship on the way to church this morning. Nobody listened to Rich Homie Kwan. But just you know, for, for those of us who are a little bit more, you know, earthly. So this, so I, you know, I, I don't like this song, but I've heard people like this song. It's this song called Flex. Um, and I wanted to read off a bunch of it to you, but frankly, I was going to have to reinterpret like half of the song, not more than half of the song. It was like, can't read that one, can't read that one, can't read that one, you know, walk into the club and the girls want to you know, pray with me. I don't know. So, so that didn't work out. So I just kind of got the part that I, that I could, that I could you know, kind of hone in on. And, 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 and again, in, in the culture, you know, for their culture, you know, accumulate wealth, you know, wealth equals power, power, you can do whatever they want, might, might make sure right. So this is how... Um, my, my man Quan uh, articulates this. He asks a really, actually, a very good question. This is what he says: <clears throat> How much you made? A hundred thousand dollars. Some sureness in this. So he says, "How much? How much you made? 
$100,000. Now, Quan wants everybody to know how much he makes. So he says, once again, how much, how much you made? And he tells them, made two millions, made two million dollars off of tape, and them folks like, ooh, ooh. Oh, you sinners. You're unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. And then he ends it with, hey, get at me. So that's, that, that's my man, Quan. Now, now. There's, a, there, there's another song, there's another song, there's another song that I love, and let me just tell you, this is how every morning starts in the Kempfer household. There's a fellow by the name of Aloe Black, and Aloe Black um, sang this song called The Man, basically, um, and he starts off, and this is how, you know, I, I wake up in the morning, and I get Lindsay up, get Ava up, you know, she can't talk yet, but I'm trying to train her right, you know, train the child when they're young, and so, you know, it starts off, well, you can tell everybody, yeah, you can tell everybody, Go ahead and tell everybody. And I tell Lindsay this because I'm like, you know, Lindsay, I know that you're going to go, you know, you work at the counseling center at Florida State. I know they're all going to ask, like, tell us about your husband. Tell us. So you know, I know sometimes you want to hold back, but Lindsay, go ahead and tell everybody that I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. I know you don't have to tell me because yes, I am, yes, I am, yes, I am. Yes, I am. You know, I'm just like, Lindsay, I, you, know, you can just go ahead and tell them. I don't, you know, I'm so selfless that you could tell them that I'm the man. Um, now, I know for some of you, uh, you, uh, you're the country folk, and I don't listen to that kind of music. So, so I, I, got, I got one for you, uh, which really means that you drive a big truck with a system in it so that you can listen to that kind of music. But there is a song that is, that is, that is super catchy right now by a fellow by the name of Chris Jansen, um, and he sings a song called Buy Me a Boat. So that's living the redneck dream. He says, <coughs> I ain't rich, but I darn sure want to be. He might not have said darn. Working like a dog all day ain't working for me. I wish I had a rich uncle that had kicked the bucket, so prayer request time. <laughs> and that I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. And I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it could buy me a, look at you guys, it could buy me a truck to pull it. It could buy me a Yeti 110 iced down with some silver bullets. So apparently he's going vampire hunting. He's going to get some silver bullets. Yeah, I just don't know what that means, just kidding. I I don't know because I'm a pastor, but like people have told me after the 945 service. Um, Yeah, I know what they say, money can't buy everything, maybe so, but it could buy me a? Very good. Now, I was thinking, I know there's there's, there's probably a couple of you guys, you know, you're from the older generation. You're like, that's, you know, kids these days. That's why I don't, you know, whatever. Okay. I was raised on a song that you probably listened to. It's by a, a group called Dire Straits. And I'm going to leave some blanks on this one, but I want you to fill those in for me. Don't worry, not any, like, crazy blanks. So, so this is what Dire Straits, you know, sang this song. And then and the phrase or the hook for this song was, you got your money for nothing and your... Look at you guys. I'm so glad you came to church this morning. Make me feel at home. Yeah, money for nothing, you know. Oh, you young kids. You know, well, okay, well, you sang get your money for nothing and your chicks for free. So we're on an even playing field right now. All generations. And, and here's, here, here's why that, that's kind of funny, whatever. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. In our culture, in our culture, in our culture, there's still something inside of you. There's still something inside of me that wants to go back to this. There's still something inside of you. There's still something inside of, inside of me that says, let me accumulate. Let me accumulate. Let me buy me a boat, you know, $100,000. You know, let me, let me get all this stuff for myself. Let me get all this stuff for myself. Because if I can get enough, then I can be strong enough, and I can power, be powerful enough, and I can do whatever I want if I have enough. Now, here's what's interesting. When Jesus stepped on the scene, when Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount, his central message, his central message as he launches into this sermon is not necessarily with my followers. That you might have stuff, but there's a different grid or there's a different lens through which I want you to view 
what you have. So, if you got your Bible, you can open up to Matthew. Sermon on the Mount starts in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus is talking. Well, before he talks, the kind of the narrator sets the scene. He says, so seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, talked about this a little bit last week, but you know, I'll give you a little catch up in case you weren't here. When Jesus talked, when Jesus walked around, you know, kind of in, in the early Bible days, Jesus would walk around, and there would be the apostles. There would be the 12, you know, people, or 12 guys or so that were kind of the inner circle, the ones we read about, the, you know, the, the, the close ones, the Johns, the Peters, the Pauls, or not Paul at that point, but there's, you know, kind of the close group. Beyond that close group, there were some disciples, and there was, that was maybe a couple dozen, maybe a hundred or so, but those were the people who were close to Jesus. And then there would be the crowd, which at times could be a few thousand, sometimes a few hundred, but oftentimes it would be this massive crowd that would come and follow him as he taught, or perhaps as he was healing people. And so he sees this mega crowd, and as he sees this big crowd, instead of addressing the entire crowd, he steps back and he starts to talk specifically to his disciples. Now, here's why that's important. Because when Jesus said this, this wasn't a message for everybody. This was a message for the people who had decided that he was their Lord, that he was Savior, and that they wanted to follow him. Which means, if you're in here and you've made the decision that you want to follow God, that you want to follow Jesus, that he is your Lord, that he is your Savior, and you want to follow his teachings, then this is for you. But here's what's interesting. If you're not, if you're kind of on the periphery, if you're on the edge, which we love the fact that you show, we, in fact, we love the fact that every week when we gather, there's people who are, you know, investigating faith, maybe for the first time, maybe coming back to it for the first time in a long time. Here's what's cool about this morning for you. You get to listen, and you don't have to feel bad. You can participate, and you're welcome and free to. But in the same way, you haven't really signed up for the team. So when you read this stuff, you can look at Christians and be like, yeah, y'all should do that. Now I'm going to go buy me a boat. You know, that's, that's what I'm going to do. But you don't necessarily have to. This, this isn't geared specifically toward you because Jesus kind of took a step back and said, hey, 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 you can participate. But let me kind of talk to some disciples for a second. He said this, and he opens up. He opened his mouth and taught them. He said, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, when he said blessed, there's a couple, a couple of things. When we, when we interpret that word blessed, we interpret it kind of as like a, you know, good for you, attaboy, maybe some, you know, physical material blessings. Like the Greek for that word blessed, actually what it, what it kind of translates down to, in, a, in a, a bit of a loose translation, is happy, happy, inner joy, inner peace, happy are the people. And as he goes through these, these, these beatitudes, he's going to basically describe these are happy people. These are happy people. These are positive people. These are people. These are people who have this inner sense of positivity, inner sense of happiness, inner sense of joy. Now, let me describe some happy people to you. And then he uses some phrases that we wouldn't normally take to, de to describe happy people. But in what he says is so intuitive into what a Christian should be. Because he starts and he says, okay, so blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, Poor in spirit, that doesn't mean, you know, physically or, you know, materially poor. He's talking about people who realize, who have this deep awareness and this deep realization that I spiritually am insufficient. That I'm not good enough. I can't behave my way enough. I can't good myself enough. I'm spiritually insufficient, but I am sufficient because I know God. Again, this is for the disciples. This is for the disciples. Now, here's kind of how I interpreted this to make it in a sense that we can understand Blessed are those, happier those, 
who realize their spiritual insufficiencies and corresponding need for God. Blessed are the people who realize that they're not good enough. Blessed are the people who don't have to try to prove themselves to God, but realize that they are sufficient in God. He continues on. He said, blessed, this is just an interesting one, blessed are those, blessed are those who mourn, happy are the people who mourn. It's like, Jesus, I don't know if you understand what mourning means. That's not a happy time. That's like the opposite of a happy time. And as people would discuss, you know, in, in, in the further centuries what he meant by mourn. Some people, you know, thought it was a physical death. Some people thought he's talking about mourning in terms of, you know, mourning sin, mourning death, mourning destruction, mourning my personal sin, your personal sin, the sin of the world. And then Paul would talk a little bit later in Thessalonians. And he'd say, hey, I don't want you to be, you know, naive about people who have fallen asleep, people who have died. I don't want you to mourn as people who don't have hope opposite of that is I do want you to mourn people as people who have hope. So here's kind of how I, I, I rewrote this one to make, make sense to us. Happy are those, happy are the people who can embrace life's extreme negative situations without losing hope. Happy are the people, happy are the people who can embrace negative situations in life, whether it's sickness, whether it's death, whether it's illness, whether it's a sin that has hurt or sin that has destroyed perhaps a family, perhaps a relationship, perhaps a people group. But blessed are the people who, because of something inside of them, which we would call God, because of something inside of them, that no matter what life throws at them, when everyone else should be mourning and everyone else should be, you know, kicking the bucket and, oh my gosh, I can't believe Blessed are the people, happy are the people, who no matter what life throws at him, don't lose hope, Jesus would say. Now, come on. Don't you know people like that? Beyond the temporal happiness, aren't those the happy people? Aren't those the joyful people that can maintain hope regardless of life situations? Jesus said, those are my people. Continues on. Blessed, happy are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Now, this is, this is interesting. Because I would think I would punch somebody in the throat if they described me as meek. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I, I, I never wake up in the morning and like, God, please, you know, I'm praying for Ava this morning, my five-month-old. Will you, you just help her to meet such a meek guy when she grows up? I'm like, I'm praying that she meets a guy with an income, you know? Like a guy with a job, maybe a career path. I'd love him to be able to, like, beat everybody up. If he had, like, a house full of guns, you know, that wouldn't be mad. Not because of guns, this or that, but just because of the fact that, like, I love my daughter, you know? So, I mean, you know, God, I'm just I'm like, meek, come on, get out of here. But, but, but we equate meekness with weakness, meekness with weakness, meekness with weakness. But when Jesus said meekness, it had a whole different connotation. The idea behind meekness, when they had it, and kind of an umbrella thought, and there's way more layers to it, is that there's strength under power, or strength under control. And so when Jesus said this, The idea was, hey, for those of you who have power, for those of you who have control, for those of you who have the ability to leverage your position, your authority, maybe the fact that, you know, you have a job and you've got some interns working for you, you've got a job and you've got people working for you, you're that, you're you're at your house, you know, your home, and you've got a little brother or sister, you have, you know, people over, maybe you're in a fraternity or sorority, and there's people who look up to you, there's people who are under you, maybe when you go back home, there's people in high school or middle school that look up to you, he says, come on, here's the deal, here's the meek people, meek people are the people who could leverage their power and influence, but choose, instead of selfishly to do that to treat people with gentleness and respect. I wrote it down this way for us. 
Happy are those that though they may have power and strength, choose to be gentle and respectful. Blessed are the people, come on. Blessed are the people who don't have to prove themselves in their masculinity or their beauty or whatever to everybody else. Blessed are the people who, though they could leverage all of that, they choose to be gentle and they choose to be respectful. Continues on. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In other words, blessed are the people. Blessed are the people who do the right thing regardless if everybody else is doing the right thing or the wrong thing. Blessed are the people who do the right thing when everyone else is doing the wrong thing when nobody else is looking. Paul says, come on. The people that are happy, the people that I've seen in my life, and Paul, Jesus said, the people that are happy and the people that honestly we've experienced that are happy are the people who do the right thing when no one else is looking. The people who do the right thing when everybody else is doing the wrong thing. The people who have the inner gumption and the inner character and the inner integrity. To do the right thing when no one else is doing the right thing. Those are people, when you look at them, they're inspiring. I mean, come on. You find someone who doesn't have to prove themselves because they realize their insufficiency and their corresponding desire and need for God. You find someone who has hope in every situation in life, no matter the negative consequence. You try to find somebody who has the strength and has the power but choose to be gentle and respectful regardless. And you find someone who does the right thing even when it's not the popular thing. Jesus would say, you're going to find some happy people. And in fact, you're probably going to find some inspiring people. He continues on. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Again, in their culture, this was huge. Because, I mean, mercy. I mean, come on, mercy. No one showed mercy. Everyone wanted justice, not mercy. Justice, not mercy. If you did something to me, I want justice. If you did something to me, I want to become more powerful so I can do something back to you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Instead, of, instead of exacting revenge, here's what I want. Here's what I want. Here's my, here's my followers, Jesus would say. I want my followers to be described as merciful, not revengeful. Continues on. Blessed, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I love this one. I love this. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Because, because when he said blessed are the pure in heart, I think this, is, this, this might be like the take home for all of us here this morning. When he said blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Here's what that means. Here's what that means. That means when you don't have sin, when you don't have all this junk weighing you down spiritually, you are able to see your heavenly father better. And come on, many of you in this room, you've experienced this. You've experienced this. You experienced, you went on a mission trip at one point. You perhaps, you went on a, to a camp at some point. You did something at some point in your life maybe where you went away and it was a spiritually focused time for a number of days. And you, you know, you had some issues back home and you had some sin struggles back home and you had some problems back home and you had some, you know, pure in heart issues at home. But then you were able to go away and be in a different environment. And when you were in that different environment, mission trip, church service, camp, whatever it was, when you were in that different environment, all of a sudden those struggles weren't struggles and you knew you were probably going to go back to them. But for a couple days, you felt pure at heart. And for the first time maybe ever, maybe for the first time in a long time, it's like you could see God working. You could see God working in the people around you. You could see God working in you. You read your Bible and it made sense. You listen to people talk and all of a sudden words and verses that people have been saying for years made sense. Here's, here's what's interesting. Jesus would say, happy are the people. Happy are the people who are pure in heart. Because if you're pure in heart, 
or when you're pure in heart. You have the unique opportunity to see God work and to see God move in ways that other people don't see as clearly. He said, and blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is just weird. It's like Jesus. So you're saying, I'm supposed to be happy when I'm persecuted. I'm supposed to be happy when I'm, I mean, come on, that doesn't even make sense. That's like, again, that's the opposite of, of happy, persecuted, persecuted, persecuted. Here you got to describe it this way one time. He said, in life, in life, pastor said this way, in life, you're going to be, you're going to be persecuted for doing the right thing or the wrong thing. Everyone in life at some point, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be dogged. You're going to be hounded. You're going to be held accountable to. You're going to be called, called on the carpet for. But at some point in life, you are going to have to give an answer for doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing. And you're going to be looked at negatively for doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing. And only one of those decisions is going to make you happy. You're going to get held accountable. You're going to be persecuted at some point for doing the right thing or for doing the wrong thing. And only one of those ways is going to make you happy. And so when Jesus said this, when Jesus said this, this, this was so countercultural, and not for the purpose because it's the cool thing to be countercultural. No, this was what Jesus was describing. Hey, you all exist in a society, Jesus would say, in a culture that says might makes right, might makes right, might makes right, accumulate, 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 get more power, more power, more power, and leverage, leverage, leverage your power so that you can do whatever you wanted. But Jesus would say, not so with my followers. In fact, a couple, for a couple of chapters later, he'd say it this way. He'd say, for even the Son of Man, even myself, Jesus would say, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. In other words, in other words, the disciples, the followers of God, would deny their rights and deny their privileges to serve other people. The people of God, though they could, they could influence, they could power, they chose to be gentle and respectful, though they could get revenge, or sometimes they could just get justice, and they decided to forgive. They could cause all kinds of havoc and all kinds of disruption, but they decided to be peaceful. And not because they're doormats, but because they realize their spiritual insufficiency, and they realize God's sufficiency. And that instills inside of them something, something greater and something bigger than themselves. And so in fact, Paul would come back in the book of Philippians, and he would say it this way, looking back at the life of Jesus, saying, for he, he didn't come, for God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. For Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but himself made it, instead made himself nothing. In other words, he would say that he didn't, he didn't, he didn't. Jesus didn't see equality with God as something to be leveraged. He didn't come down and pull the God card because he could have came down and just like smited or smoted, depending on where you're from, everybody, and just, you know, decided, I am God, listen to me. And so instead of leveraging his God-given, himself-given power and authority, because might made right. He chose to empty himself, taking the very nature of a servant, and become obedient, and obedient to the point of death on a cross, to pour out his life for the ransom of many. 
And what's interesting, again, is as you're reading through this, a few decades ago, some people decided to come in and put some big, you know, subject heads in this and say, okay, so this is a different subject. But when Jesus said these words, they were connected to the previous words. And so Jesus doesn't say, okay, so that's the Beatitudes, new subject. Jesus says this. He says, and so you, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In the same way, you, let me give you another picture, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine. In other words, hey, let, me, let me just tell you. In this culture, Jesus would say, especially to their culture, but still in our culture, people, people who don't leverage their own personal gifting and their own personal authority for themselves, People who don't have to prove themselves because they know that they're insufficient and they know that the only reason they are sufficient is because of the sufficient God that they serve. People who have hope when there seems like no hope in the situation. People have this inner sense of hope no matter what life throws at them. People who they have power and they have respect choose to be gentle and respectful regardless of what happens. People who are pure at heart. People who want to do the right thing whether nobody's doing the right thing or whether anybody's looking. He said, those are one, the happy people, but two, those are the different people. In your light, in my light, your saltiness, in my saltiness, the difference that we are is summarized in the Beatitudes. And then he would say this. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, when people see this, when people see this, the driving force behind you being a Beatitudes type of person isn't simply that you would be a Beatitudes type of person. The idea is that as you're becoming the person God's called you to be, you and I become the type of people that other people see. And there's something so different. There's something sometimes so confident. There's something sometimes so compelling about that. About the fact that these people don't have to leverage themselves. These people don't have to promote themselves. These people don't have to do all the things that it seems like everybody else does. They're not just trying to accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. They're not just trying to leverage themselves. But they're serving. They're caring. They're loving. They're forgiving. They're hopeful. They're righteous. They do the right thing. I mean, regardless, Jesus would say, that should be the driving force behind people turning their life to God. That they would see your good works. They would see the way that you live. They would see the integrity that you have. And they would make the connection between you and your heavenly Father. You know what that means? The primary version of discipleship, the primary version of evangelism, shouldn't be a guy on a microphone that's charismatic. It should be a bunch of Christians who live what they believe. It should be a bunch of disciples who live what they believe. It should be a bunch of disciples who realize their insufficiency and their corresponding need for God. It should be a bunch of disciples who their life throws everything at them, never lose hope. It should be a bunch of disciples 
who because they realize their insufficiency, because they have hope, and because they might have power and authority, they choose to be respectful, and they choose to be gentle. They're the kind of people that do the right thing, regardless if anybody's looking or if anybody else is doing it. They're the kind of people that are peacemakers, when no one else wants to make peace. They're the kind of people, they're the kind of people who have joy when they're persecuted, who are happy because they know that they're representing their Heavenly Father. Come on. If you're in here on the fence of Christianity, on the fence of Jesus and the Bible and God, I mean, I, I get that. I was completely at that point at one time. My guess is if you saw Christians that way, you'd be a lot more open to God. If you really saw Christians living like that, you would be a lot more open to God. And if you're in here and you're a Christian, here's kind of when I read the Beatitudes, there's like four of them maybe, maybe three of them that like I feel like I'm, I'm doing pretty good at, you know. There's like two of them that I'm like, eh, I'm 50-50, you know, I'll give myself credit because, you know, self-biased. But there's like one or two that I'm like, I suck at that. Now, here's what I want you to do. As you read through the Beatitudes, in effect, as you go and take these and you go back to your community groups and you discuss them, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. That one or that two or maybe that seven, you know, that you're just awful at, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I know. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm good at meekness, and that just kind of comes natural to me, and I realize my insufficiency, that kind of comes natural to me. But, I mean, come on, the whole, like, peaceful thing, I mean, I just cause all kinds of drama. One, just pray for your friends. But two, you know, maybe that for you, maybe that for you, that's the growing point. Maybe that's the start that, that when you go and you have your daily time with God that you start to pray about. Maybe for you, again, maybe for you, if it's a pure at heart thing that, you know, you have all that other stuff, but, you know, just a pure at heart, just kind of, kind of all kinds of turmoil and drama, all that kind of stuff in your life that you just have these sins that are just, you know, attached onto you. Then, then hey, maybe for you, it's that you, again, that, that, that's a growing point. That's a praying point. That's what you begin praying about when you, when you go home. That's what you begin praying about as you spend your time daily with God. That's what you start to talk about as you join together in community groups. One of the things that we do in the community groups, and we've done intentionally this semester, is we're including a little bit of accountability into it because we know critical to my growth and critical to your growth is other people knowing transparently what's going on in my life. People, I'm sinful. I'm sinful. The structure of our church is developed around a, around a plurality of leadership because at the end of the day, I'm a sinful person. This whole ship can't ride or die on me. So you need people, and I need people who transparently see into our lives. Maybe for you, maybe for you it's that, you know, that you have the power and you have the authority. But you definitely aren't gentle and respectful with it. Maybe it's for you, it's you're in a situation where you're mourning and you just don't feel like you have any hope. But here's what I'm hoping. Here's what I'm hoping. That for everyone in here who calls themselves a Christian, for everyone in here who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus, for everyone in here who has given their heart and their life to God and says, I want to follow Jesus, that wherever you are when it comes to the Beatitudes, whatever you are when it comes to these things that describe the people of God, Whatever your growing point is, my hope and my prayer is God would use that and leverage that not as a point to make you feel bad, not as a point to make you feel guilty, but as a point to inspire you to get better. That you would take that and not walk out the door and be like, oh my gosh, I suck at life. That you would look at that and then look at it as an opportunity for growth. Because God has called you as the people of God. To be different. He's called you as the people of God. To be light. He's called you as the people of God. To be the salt of the earth. 
that people would quite literally see the way that you live and turn and make the connection and praise your Father in heaven. Now, I'm with this. If you're in here, again, on the periphery, not really sure about Jesus, not really sure about God, my hope, my hope for you is that as you are here, as you interact, I hope you, I hope you join a community group even though you're not really even sure if you should. I hope that you see Christians. I hope that you see Christians who are this, who are poor in spirit, who have hope when they mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I mean, all the whole list. I hope that you meet those type of Christians. And I hope that impacts how you view God. And how cool would it be? How cool would it be? If when people looked at Christians, when you looked at Christians, you might not believe anything that they believe, but there was not a doubt in your mind that they lived what they believed. How much differently, again, how much differently would you view God? I'm hoping that at some point you see those people and you make that connection. Let's pray together.